0: Thanks for listening to the Junior Ziegler podcast. If you are crazy enough to want more of his content, check out the link in the description of this podcast. That link can get you to his book, his socials, and another podcast. Thanks for hitting play. Here's Junior. She had a smile. and I don't know how. She's wearing a very traditional African head wrap, bouncing her child in her arms, her bright smile was infectious, maybe because the smile didn't make sense. The child she held on to could have been a reminder of what she didn't have to smile about. A year before, she had visited a local witch doctor, and he had overpowered and abused her, leading to a pregnancy. And when her husband found out, he had kicked her out, and the village banished her. So homeless and pregnant, she wandered nowhere to go, and she lived in the home of a pastor, And there we were gathered, smiling, singing, even dancing. And when you look into the eyes of someone who has dealt with that kind of injustice, something in you stirs. It elicits our strongest emotion. You return her smile, but three words bounce around in your head. That's not right. Let's go hunt the witch doctor down. Let's get the truth out to the rest of the village. It's injustice. Something in us just can't stand it. Partly because we know what it tastes like. Maybe not to that degree, but we know what it tastes like. Your ex lied, destroying your reputation so that they could have custody of the children. The business partner stabbed you in the back and took your contacts and effectively broke your career in that field. Or your coworker took the credit. Child was falsely accused. That in-law paints you in a negative light. Or you were fired and you didn't do what they said you were doing. And every time you think of it, something in you burns. That's not right. Yet there's something in the back of your mind that realizes it's life, and it likely won't be the last time that you taste that feeling. But we're also not the first. The Bible records others who have faced serious injustice, and in what they did and how they handled it gives us this map and how we can handle it today. If you don't need what we're about to get into, count it a blessing. But we're all going to need this eventually, so let's get it. Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, we'll be at page 914 in the Bibles in the chairs. Otherwise, as Maddie had said in the What's Happening, we have the Bridge app, and we have the Bible and notes all in one place. We've been in this series, the story of us, just going through the book of Acts. We've taken this, so far this year we've been going through the book of Acts. We haven't made it that far partly because we have a slow teaching pastor but you guys are very gracious with me and we've been taking our time through this book and we've been finding really that when it comes to the early church there were some awesome things but there're also some things that needed some some attention and some difficult things and we're going to see one of those difficult things play out today a lot on the docket so let me pray we'll jump right in god we do thank you for the words that we hold in our hands the beauty of these words and the depth of these words they're living and active, and sharper than any two-edged sword. and Father, you want to do a surgery on many of us with that sword today. We humbly submit ourselves to what you have for us. May we not spend this time fighting off situations or conviction, but humbly coming before you. This is your word. We believe it's true. We receive what it says. In the name of Jesus, please open our hearts and engage our minds. Amen. Well, as the lens of Scripture zooms into Acts chapter 6, we find ourselves in what is called the Kidron Valley. From here, the walls of Jerusalem tower over Mount Moriah, giving the city this imposing presence in these hills. And though the city above is, is bustling with activity, down here has this certain natural tranquility. The breeze brings rogue olive leaves over from the Garden of Gethsemane, just a couple hundred yards over. And the shallow brook at the base of the valley provides a babbling white noise, beckoning birds to come and cool off. And though this spot feels surreal to us and and feels serene, locals know it as anything but. See, from here, you could have witnessed Jesus sweating blood and then arrested by a militia. But more recently, there are fresh blood stains in the rocks that litter the ground here. Red pools that have baked into the dust. It was just hours ago, a mob had spilled out of the gate above and crowding this very spot. One victim was thrown into the middle. His friends and his families further up the hill watched a scene play out that would haunt their memories for years to come. And that haunting memory is recorded. Luke starts it here in verse 80. He writes, and Stephen, just real quick, Stephen's a really big name today. He's venerated as a saint. We have um, cathedrals and and universities that are named after him. Uh, This is the Eastern Orthodox portrayal of him. Apparently he had a sweet mullet. He's got kind of Jordan vibes going on, doesn't he? Just just a little bit. Uh, We had met Stephen last week when a group of Jewish widow, uh, Greek Jewish widows were in need, and Stephen was chosen to solve the problem. And so Stephen was a food runner in the church, just running groceries to Greek older ladies. You imagine carrying bags of um, tzatziki and saganaki to the Greek ladies. And it's a job that many would consider very menial and insignificant, but he faithfully showed up and did that. And over time, God gave him more influence through that faithfulness. And so Luke writes that Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Sometimes as Bible readers, at least I've been, we can be very guilty of just breezing breezing right by verses like this because we know some drama's coming, right? He's about to be arrested. He's about to be tried. He's about to be murdered. So like, let's let's get to the juice here. But the problem is, is when we breeze right by things like this, we lose out on who Stephen really is. We lose out on the setup that Luke has for us. And that's a shame because Stephen's life has a lot to teach us. It's not just his death that teaches us something. It's his life. Again, in a second, we're going to see that Stephen was a great preacher. He's a powerful preacher, but it came from a powerful life. We tell our young preachers this at the bridge, like, powerful preaching is good, but it must come from a powerful life. And that was Stephen. He had a very powerful life. Luke writes that he was full of, full of grace, which translates as grace as chorus, which translates as um, generous and also grateful. Which actually kind of makes sense because grateful people are generous and generous people are grateful. But in this context, Luke is saying Stephen was relationally generous. He was very easy to get along with. No drama with Stephen. No gossip with Stephen. He wasn't easily offended. Stephen wasn't easily bothered. Stephen was one of those guys, and I like guys like this. Stephen was one of those guys who just like, you always felt like they were in your corner. You have anyone like like that in your life? Like they're they're just in your corner. Now they'll they'll confront you, but they want to see you succeed. They're cheering you on. They they don't compete with you. You trust them. It's a very precious friend. That was Stephen. That was Stephen's reputation. And because Stephen had this reputation, Luke writes that he he was full of power. Now, this power isn't just this like natural power that you get from, from influence. The, the original wording that Luke uses here is this is supernatural power. When you were with Stephen, you could tell God was doing something different through Stephen. Something special. There's something special going on with Stephen. Verse 9 says, Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of freed men, as it was called, and the Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. This just goes to show, you can be living right. You can have a good reputation of being easy to get along with. You can be in people's corner. Heck, you can be bagging groceries for old ladies and still get attacked. And that's a hard concept for people-pleasers to grasp, but it is reality, especially when you're in leadership. Man, when you're in leadership, and and some of you really know this, there's always going to be a faction of people that just don't care for you. They don't care for your style. They don't care for your direction. Maybe they're just a little bit envious. They think they should be where where you are. And, And the more influence you get, the more they're bothered. Same thing happened with Jesus and the Pharisees. This is Stephen. Stephen has, is an easy target for that. He's liked by many. He's a young, up-and-coming leader. As his influence is growing, so is the target on his head. There's a lot of things in verse 9 as we look at this. It can be kind of a little bit confusing, a lot of different um, names and locations here. But if we understand this synagogue of freedmen, things will make a little bit more sense. And it, and it does kind of open up this text more. So let me just spend a little bit of time talking about this, this synagogue of freedmen. Most scholars believe that this synagogue of freedmen was a synagogue made of former slaves, which is kind of cool, like all these different nationalities and different backgrounds, but like one thing they had in common they could find in common is they were former slaves, which is a bit like us. Uh, we have many different backgrounds and, um, and, and, and different nationalities, but we can come together and we were former slaves to sin. So this is kind of a cool concept of, of, this, of this synagogue. But what's even cooler is in 1913, an archaeologist was digging in the lower part of the city of David. Now, if you've been to Israel with the bridge, uh, I love spending time in the lower part of the city of David. We spent some time there in the Pool of Siloam, very cool area. But they were digging in this area, and they uncovered this Greek inscription of a synagogue, which is very weird, because synagogues are Jewish. But according to verse 9, tells us that this one in Jerusalem, there's one in Jerusalem that had some diversity. And if you have a bunch of former slaves together, there's really only one language that they would be able to, to, that they would all understand that would be Greek, and so that likely comes from this this um, this synagogue here in, in Acts, but now they got problems, and I don't think we can solve. I'm sorry, girl, Dad. Uh, just looking to see where we're at. All right, so there's conflict, verse 10, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Verse 11 says, I'll pull, pull it up here on the screen. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they couldn't pin anything on Stephen. So now they're going to mach- manufacture something against him. Now what's the accusation here? It's a big accusation. He speaks against God speaks against Moses. That's going to elicit a lot of, of anger. And now if you highlight or underline in your Bible, save the end of verse 11, because something cool is about to happen that's connected to the end of verse 11. But first, we do get a principle from this text. The enemy uses false accusations. If you have had injustice done against you, if you had a false accusation, in some ways it's to be expected, because that's just life. In fact, Jesus himself called it. They did this to Joseph in Egypt, if you, if you remember that. Story. Um, they did this against Jesus. They do this against Stephen. This is going to happen. This happens today. Actually, 10 years ago now, a guy left our church um, angry. He's in marriage counseling, and marriage counseling didn't go the way he wanted it to. So he got very angry. He was like, Well, I wonder why his marriage sucked. But he got very angry and he left, and he left very ticked. And sometimes this happens, but he left with a vendetta against some people at, at our church. And, um, and again, this, this happens more frequently than maybe. Think, but so he went home and he went on um, a dating site and he used my dad's name and my dad's picture and he started impersonating my dad and hitting on all these different women just to get this this story circulating. And the guy's not smart because he used a picture. The only picture he could find was of me, of my dad and my mom together. And uh, so women were like, "Why are you? Who's in the picture?" And he would say that my mom died. And uh, eventually this woman from Texas who thought she was talking to my dad online finds our church website, finds out my mom's still alive, takes like all of the transcripts of the conversation to the elders and the elders do an investigation, come to find out it was the guy who left angry several months before and he, he admitted to it. It's just silly. But this kind of stuff happens. I just found out like a couple weeks ago, people on uh, Google reviews of our church have accused me of like serious, terrible crimes, like horrible things that I don't want my kids to ever see. Luckily, Google um, took them down because my wife was like dressed for war. She's about to go to war um we actually we actually sat our kids down We're like hey kids this kind of comes with the last name in the territory like you're going to hear stuff sometimes uh, but i don't want that to be make you bitter toward the church the church is beautiful and made up of good people sometimes there's just some crazy people and and you hear things and you can always talk to daddy and we'll have those conversations but baseless false accusations they happen it's just it's a sad reality now that's not to say that accusations accusations shouldn't be taken seriously People do terrible things and they should be held accountable. Accusations should be looked into. Victims should be heard. In fact, maybe you were a victim and you accused somebody and you weren't heard, and that's awful. Investigations should happen. But we also have to understand, we have to be wise. We have to know there are a lot of false ones too. And the enemy throughout scripture uses false accusations to destroy a person, but also the people, us. Because here's what happens, and this happens all the time, is we'll hear something through the grapevine. Like for example, did you hear about the... And and our ears, in fact, some of your ears worked up. Oh, tell me, what's going on? Like, we love that kind of stuff. You know, we give us the deeds. Like, let's squeeze where there's juice. And and we get attention by adding to it. Well, I kind of experienced this. You know, I read and I talked to so-and-so. And bloggers make bank off this sick obsession of ours. But we form opinions and we get all amped and it grows like cancer in our mind and in our community. The enemy loves false accusations for three main reasons. Because three things, three main, a lot of things happen, but three main things happen when there's a false accusation. These are three things that we should all guard ourselves on. The first thing that, that, that can happen is it neutralizes the accused, meaning that it'll take the person and it'll bench them for a while. This is what happened to Joseph in Genesis. Do you remember that story of Joseph in Genesis? You know, he's working in Potiphar's house, and Potiphar's wife wants a little bit of Joseph. You know what I'm talking about? He says no, so she falsely accuses him. And, and he was growing with influence, but the enemy benches him. Um, puts, him, puts him in prison exactly what's going down here the synagogue's thinking if we can just pin an accusation on Stephen people will look sideways at him whether it's true or not people are going to look sideways at him it'll stunt his influence so that whole idea of like innocent until proven guilty that is a f- fantastic practice but often our minds uh, they, they don't have the capacity to operate that when we hear something it's typically guilty until proven innocent and even there if you're proven innocent I'm just going to look at you a little bit different The enemy leverages this tendency against our unity. Throw out a story, let the drama lovers run with it. Meanwhile, it neutralizes the accused. But the second thing that that happens, and again, we have to be careful with ourselves on this, is it it stirs division. This is what plays out in verse 12. Verse 12, he stirred up the people to see Stephen. So let's just drop a grenade of pieces of information. He hates Moses, he hates God, and then let everybody else choose sides. Now, here's how this often goes down today. And again, I bet you've seen this in your family. I bet you've seen this in your office or or friend group. And we have to be careful of this. A piece of information hits our ears. Hey, Jerry from accounting was called into HR after losing his temper. Or a leader is on a leave of absence. Or a friend tells you that Susie said something. And we naturally want to know the full story. So I'm very guilty of this because I like storytelling. So I love to fill in all the little pieces. Anyway, fill in the gaps. Okay, I know this and I know this. Let's just kind of fill in a story between. Meanwhile, a friend is doing the exact same thing, but their story is just a little bit different. So I got to get together with my friend. We can kind of swap stories and we can build this, build this narrative. And then at some point, something even more toxic happens. We come to a conclusion where we'll say, well, there's always wrong on both sides. You ever hear that? I've said that before. Well, there's always wrong on both sides. So Jerry from, you know, Jerry from accounting lost his temper, but you know I could see the boss speaking disrespectfully, totally see that happening. Well, you know, Susie's really hurt, and she gets hurt a lot. She's easily offended. She's a millennial. But still, you know, she's hurt, so she deserves an apology if she's hurt. Both sides need to apologize. Both sides need to agree. Bad bosses operate this way. In fact, maybe you've been upset with a boss for this. Like, and he brought it into the office instead of like, you know, let's figure this out. It's like, why don't you just apologize to each other? Bad parenting. I mean, I've been guilty of this. You know, two kids are fighting. It's like, why don't you just apologize to each other and move on and get out of my hair? We can be guilty of this. But we have to remember, justice isn't always compromising. Sometimes people are just wrong. And we have to operate that way. So years ago, I, so I oversaw our summer camp staff. And any time you get people together, there's bits of drama. You know, it's just part of the course to be expected. And, and of course that happened. And uh, middle way the way through the summer, a student had got upset with their supervisor. It felt like the supervisor talked to them in a mean way. Helicopter parent got involved and like demanded justice. And, and so I talked to those who were present, who were there um, during the situation. And it was pretty clear. The boss handled things well. Now, she was firm, but she was kind. She was not disrespectful. And also this student was just upset about having to do a job they didn't want to do. Um, used to getting their way on things. The student had a pattern of thinking everybody was mean to them, you know, kind of bounced from one group to another group and always, always something happened to them and, and um, just had a pattern of that. So it became pretty clear what had happened. But the accusation was on the table. Boss was mean and treated me unfairly and either you fire them or I quit. And I don't play those games, but I called the meeting between the two. And I was tempted to go in and just say, hey, let's compromise, okay? Wrong on both sides. Let's apologize to each other. Move on, easy peasy. But what would that have done? the enemy would have gained ground. One person was 100% wrong. Had we compromised, the enemy would have gained 50% ground there. It would have been terrible to punish the person who was doing their job, and it would have been unhealthy to validate someone's sin. It also would have been terrible for the team's culture. So that very popular saying that we'll say, you know, oh, there's always wrong on both sides, that's a terrible way to operate. It's not how God operates with us. When we were in sin, God doesn't compromise with us, hey, let's just meet halfway. No, it's like, you were wrong, and there needs to be repentance. The third reason the enemy uses false accusations, the third thing that happens, and again, we gotta be careful of this, is it distracts from the mission. If an office, and maybe you experienced this this last week, but if an office or a team is caught up in drama, that's an office or a team that is not focused on the mission or the business. If a sports team has internal drama in the locker room, it greatly impacts what happens out on the field, the main mission. I think that's what happened to the 86 Bears, isn't it? Like the 85 bears, awesome. 86 bears, was some internal conflict and it, it affected what happened out on the field. Same thing happens with churches. And some churches, heaven forbid it ever BS, can get so caught up in all the little drama of who's saying what and who's into what. And it takes us away from the goal of loving and reaching the community that God has told us to love and to reach. And so we get so hopped up on what's happening in, in you know, the little drama that we miss Okay, people are going to hell though. And that really matters. So you think about it this way. It's here in the narrative that Stephen is faced with the decision. Do I spend my time and my energy and my conversation on defending myself? Okay, I gotta get together, form my defense, you know, identify who's with me, who's not with me, try to convince those who aren't with me to come to my side. Like, do I make this into a thing or does Stephen continue to do what God has called him to do? Serve, love people, lead, preach, not get caught up in battling all the narratives. That's really hard to do. And that's a decision that you have been faced with and you will be faced with. Do I get caught up in this drama and trying to control the narrative? Or do I rise above this and stay focused on what God would have me stay focused on? Candidly, that is something that I am trying to grow in, that I'm not very good at. My parents named my middle name Daniel. And they would tell me as a kid that they named me Daniel after Daniel and the lion's dead. Um, they said, we named you Daniel because Daniel resolved in his heart that he would not defile himself. So when they had dedicated me as a child, just like we saw earlier, that was my verse. Daniel resolved in his heart that he would not defile himself. And my parents would remind, that, uh, remind me of that constantly. That's why we named you Daniel. Uh, when, when the critics came after Daniel, they couldn't pin anything on him. And that was just my parents' vision for me. And I really took that to heart. You know, I gotta live up to my middle name. And so when accusations come my way, I can get really rattled like, yeah, I'm not living up to, to, to my name here. Like, I want to establish my defense. I want to prove that my innocence, and, and a lot of that is my own self-righteous pride that I just can't have people saying, it has is, it is consumed me, i got to prove them wrong, and I can kind of be a fighter. It's like, i got to fight this. It was a couple of years ago that my dad had said this, and it really changed my heart on it. He said, if you, if you live trying to justify yourself against every false accusation, you will do yourself more damage than the actual accusation. Often, we just make things worse. Because people get defensive, emotions are charged, battles happen, and some people, I hate to say it, but some people are just going to always believe the worst. And some people just wanna believe the worst about you. So sometimes you have to just let things roll off, keep doing what matters, not let them sidetrack you from what God has called you to do. Like, I hate to say it, but you're going to deal with injustice. There's gonna be things that happen to you that's just, it's not right. you're going to get falsely accused. A business partner is going to stab you in the back. Your ex is going to spread things. People are going to believe lies about you. And it hurts. It hurts deep. You lose sleep. You feel weird because people are looking at you sideways. You're trying to figure out how to navigate that. And if you're anything like me, you really want to withdraw from people and just kind of stay away from people because you're, you're, you know, you're an introvert. But at some point you have to decide, am I going to fight this or am I going to fight the, the good fight? Am I going to be consumed by every little thing or am I going to stay focused on the greater thing that God has called me to? Fight every little fight or fight the good fight? It sounds super weird, but I've been, uh, a dream of mine was to pick up boxing. You ever see those like, you ever see those movies where guys are boxing, you know, in the boxing gym? I always see those like, I thought it was so manly and so cool. I got to do that. So I joined this like boxing gym and got smacked around. I did not float like a butterfly or sting like a bee. It would have been a bad movie. But at one point, I was was sparring with the trainers, this big Polish dude. And and as I'm sparring with him, he's kind of teaching me about boxing. And and as I'm boxing a little bit, he's he's like jabbing me. And he's doing these fake outs and jabbing me. And I would bite every single time to defend myself. And then as I tried to defend myself, he'd clobber me across the face. And with my ears ringing, I would hear, Junior, stay focused on the real fight. I'd be like, Well, stop jabbing me then. And he said, Junior, I'm trying to rattle you. I'm trying to get under your skin. I'm trying to tire you out and bust your focus so that you don't fight me when it matters. Stupid sport. (laughs) But the enemy does that to you. Baits you into all of these little stupid fights to keep you from the real fight. The real fight is to walk closer to Jesus. The real fight is to bring as many people to Jesus as possible. The real fight is to invest yourself fully in the kingdom of God. The real fight is to love his imperfect church. The real fight is to beat down your pride. The real fight is to love ferociously. The real fight is to stay out of all the juicy drama and the real fight is to live above reproach in a life of holiness. You can't fight the real fight if you're just always defending yourself and fighting all these dumb little battles. So often it does point, it does point back to, are you you're gonna fight back or fight the good fight? Often it's one or the other. And as we'll see, Stephen chooses to stay focused on the real fight. He, chose, he, he chooses to stay on mission. But first, God steps in and does something brilliant. So verse 13, Stephen is put on trial. False accusations and, and witnesses are, are coming at him. And you know that hurts to hear all that. But look at verse 15. Verse 15 is connected to verse 11 so beautifully. It says, And gazing at him, all who sat on the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So often, Bible readers miss this, and it's too bad because what's happening here is so rich. Remember the original accusation. Stephen hates God and Moses. Stephen hates Moses. It's a big accusation during this time. Stephen hates our beloved Moses who talked to God, our beloved Moses who gave us the law, our beloved Moses who went into the fire of the mountain, came down, saw the glory of God, and Moses came down with his face shining so bright we had to veil his face. Yeah, but whose face is glowing now? Stephen. God is sending this message you want to accuse Stephen of hating Moses? Stephen is more like Moses than you'll ever be. Look at his face. I love scripture, I and mean, it just goes to show we stay focused on what God has for us. God takes care of a lot of the little things that we get that we get distracted by. I mean, this is such a good text. Uh, next chapter, chapter seven. Stephen speaks up, and you can see you can see in the heading it's a sermon. And Stephen essentially gives the history of the Old Testament. So verse two, if you look at verse two, he brings up Abraham. God called Abraham out of this land. This is like the start of the, the Jewish nation. Verse nine, he brings up Joseph. Joseph brings a family to Egypt. And over the years, they, they grow into a nation and they're enslaved in Egypt. Then he brings up the man he's accused of hating, Moses. In verse 20, Moses led the nation out of Egypt. But in verse 35, Stephen says, hey, but Moses was rejected too. You love Moses, but remember the people rejected him. Verse 51, Stephen then sums it up beautifully and he says, Moses was rejected and now you're doing that to Jesus. Notice Stephen here does not make this about him. Hey, Moses rejected, now you're rejecting me. He doesn't do that. He's not trying to defend himself. He says, he brings it back to Jesus and he gives us point number two. The mission is now, justice comes later. I know that's often hard to hear, but it's just true. The mission is now, justice comes later. The full story will come out later. We just have to trust that sometimes. Notice here, Stephen isn't pleading for his life. He's not begging for freedom. He's not proving his innocence. Instead, he sees this circus as an opportunity to showcase Jesus Christ. That's remarkable strength. To hear a false accusation or a lie against yourself, but to in that moment transcend the pain, transcend the anger to bring it to Jesus. That's incredible. And a lot of the Christian life is is figuring out how can I creatively adapt what Stephen is doing here to my life this week? When you're the subject of gossip, when you're unfairly let go, when you're getting stabbed in the back, when there's a story circulating about you that's just not true, when you're left out, when you're overlooked, when there's family drama and it's not right, how can you transcend that pain and transcend that anger to stay focused on? This is what God has for me though. And so we're just gonna stay focused on that. May we never forget, we just have this little sliver of time to go after the mission. Just this little sliver of our existence to make an impact, to bring people to Jesus The enemy wants to distract us in that little sliver of time. Can you stay focused on the mission and trust justice will come later? Pain hurts, but it doesn't change our calling. And sometimes we operate that way. I'm hurting, so my calling has changed. No, pain hurts, but it doesn't change what we're called to do. Sometimes you just soldier on and you march with a limp if you have to, but you keep going. I love what Spurgeon wrote. You know, God, God gives his most difficult assignments to his most trusted soldiers. Like, it still hurts, but can we take solace in, like, God, but God trusts me with this pain. I've mentioned before, but my, my middle daughter, Nora, she was born with a serious eye issue, and for a while, a long while, we really thought she was gonna lose sight in her right eye, um, which then it wouldn't develop well, and um, kind of a snowball of things. And, uh, and, and she's had some really good... She had a really good appointment this last week, really good appointment last month. It looks like, like God's worked a miracle, and it's, it's just incredible to see what, what has happened. Like, the doctors are dumbfounded. But there was a, a good long bit where we really thought she was going to lose her eyesight. She's pretty quiet about it, and I, so I took her aside one day, and I was just like, how's it going? Like, what are you feeling? You've got to be scared. Eight years old, and she said, Dad, I guess I'm just glad that God trusts me with handling this well. Man, from the mouth of babes. God's doing the same with you. Because I know a situation came to mind. He's trusting you that. He's trusting you to not lash out, to not get distracted, to not burn the place down, but to have grace. God trusts me to carry this, and carry it I will to the finish if I have to. Sometimes I wonder how much of our pain will melt upon hearing the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. You fought the right fight the whole way through. Well done. I think in that moment, many of us are just going to go, those little battles really didn't matter. And so Stephen preaches, it's not a great response though, verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. For whatever reason, Often, not always, and I don't fully understand how this works, but often pain gives us the best view of God. I can't fully tell you why, but it's just true. Pain gives us a better seat to see God. Mainly because we have a dad who wants to meet us in the hurt, because that's what good dads do. I think about for my own daughter, this is like this last week, my daughter, one daughter was hurt. She kind of felt left out of a friend thing, and it's part of childhood. You know, it's like, in some ways, it's good for her to navigate. I'm not going to be the helicopter parent like go fix it for her. But like, she's hurt and she's emotional and she's telling me this. And in that moment, all I wanted to do was just be with her, to just be with her. And, and I'm not, I'm like, I'm far from the perfect dad. How much more does the perfect dad, the heavenly father see us in our pain and say, I'm gonna meet you there more than ever before. They're gonna walk away from you. They're gonna believe the worst about you. They're gonna cut you up real good behind your back. This is going to hurt, but I will taste it with you and I will meet you there. Stephen's best view of God was in a moment of great, fear and intense pain. And sometimes we have to understand we serve the same God. And so when, we, when we're losing some friendships that we thought we had and some people are stabbing us in the back and there's stories circulating about us, in that moment, can we remember, but maybe this is the best place to see God more than ever before. But the pain is still real, verse 57. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. We'll get to know Saul in the coming weeks. They were stoning Stephen. He called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against. I love the forgiveness in Stephen. And when he said this, he fell asleep, meaning dead. Till the very end, he kept his eyes on Jesus. And it gives us our third and final point. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Injustice happens. Don't look so much at the injustice as much as at Jesus. Stephen wasn't going to play the victim. He wasn't going to pout. He wasn't going to he wasn't going to burn the place down. He was just too focused on heaven to care about the injustice of this broken planet. I know I don't look like it, but I'm a really big hymn guy. I love, I love hymns. I've like got on my Spotify playlist. I have like a worship playlist. Majority, I think, are hymns. I just I love, I love hymns. There's one, uh, one line in a hymn that's just my favorite line ever. It's, it's from Helen Lemel who wrote, The things of earth grow strangely dim, in the light of his glory and grace. Love that line. I've always sang that line thinking like, the great things of earth grow strangely dim. The riches of earth grow strangely dim. The rat race of earth grow, the the image of earth grows strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's certainly true. But also the pain of this earth grows strangely dim. The injustice you feel also grows strangely dim. The closer you walk to Jesus, the less this broken planet has a grip on you. That's why the good fight is to walk closer to Jesus, because the more you fight that fight of walking closer to Jesus, the less you care about anything else in this world. Going back to boxing, uh, that trainer was telling, I think I'm going to quit, but that <laughs> the trainer was telling me, he was, he was saying, uh, in a fight, your left will for me be my left hand is for, for jabbing, feeling out your opponent and just kind of wearing them down and distracting them. But your dominant hand, you hook. And he, he said, another word for it, though, is you cross hit. He said, the hook, or he said, the cross has the power. I was like, oh, dude, true, words of Nervous spoken man. The cross has the power. I mean, you're going to be maligned. You're gonna have some friends you thought they were your friends and, and they attacked you. You're gonna be left out. And some are gonna believe what they want to about you and they're gonna always wanna believe the worst about you. And your reputation's going to be attacked and you're gonna get stabbed in the back. But come on, like, that's only a small taste of what Jesus meant at the cross. We follow one who had his fair share of critics. What was his reputation? Drunkard, glutton, friend of sinners. What do people say about his teaching? It's just too accessible to the masses. He didn't teach as the scribes did. He told too many stories. He was too practical a teacher. Like he lived a life of just constant accusations and he was nailed to a cross, not for what he did, but for what we did. And so the cross, the symbol of injustice, yeah, the cross has the power. And it was Jesus who said, you take up your cross and you follow me. Still fight the good fight. By locking your eyes, not on the trivial things of this world and controlling all of these narratives, you lock your eyes on the cross. The cross has the power. His injustice is my justice. His blood is my forgiveness. I deserve hell, but I get Jesus. The greatest injustice isn't what people do to us. The greatest injustice is we get heaven. And the more we believe that, the more that eclipses anything that's hurled at us. The cross has the power every time. It's the the only reason she could smile that day. Bouncing her baby. A baby conceived from a rape. Homeless. But all smiles. Because her eyes weren't on anything down here. It's as if her eyes themselves grown to heaven. And I'll never forget that moment of hearing her sing out in a French-African accent, almost screaming out, It's your breath in my lungs. And so I'll pour out my praise. i pour out my praise. It's your breath in our lungs. That, That smile said it all. To her, the pain of the atrocities that she went through, it just felt so dim in the light of his glory and his grace. The cross has the power every single time thanks again for listening again for more content just scroll down to the podcast description and follow the link before we call it would you be kind enough to share this podcast it goes a long way blessings on you today see you next time